The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. If you're like most executives, you've probably woken up in the morning and thought, we need more capital. Or maybe you thought, I want to get wealthy. I want to use the public markets just the same way that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, and so many other people have to get rich. Why can't I get rich too? My company has the potential to make me rich. So the question, should we take our company public? And if we take our company public, What's the best next move for us? To answer those questions, and that's a mouthful, all those different questions, Mike Brett. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So you, uh, you, you started as an attorney, I guess, right? That's kind of where you came from? Yes. Yeah, I've got my doctorate degree in law for uh, 42 years um, and uh, done a lot of work in asset protection private placements, uh, you know, raising capital. And then uh, in my later years here, I focused strictly on uh, advising companies on the proper method of going public. So um, how many companies that call you are really ready to go public? I mean, I mean, listen, you know, I'm in the money business, you're in the money business, uh, you know, in different capacities, but how many companies that call you are really ready to uh, go public? You know, I'd say about one out of every 10 <laughs> uh, so wait, wait, before you keep yeah, going, how, wait, how many of them think they're ready to go public? <laughs> Nine out of 10 think they're ready to go public. <laughs> yeah, that, that means that there's, that there's a real disconnect and that there's a lot they need to understand. This is going to be a good episode. So let's, let's tell people what they need to know. And, you know, what does it take to be ready? What are the, and we'll, we'll come back to, you know, early stages of capital raising later, but what do the public markets want? What do successful companies who go public, uh, you know, what do they bring to the table? You know, that, that's a very good question. Um, what they really need to be to have a chance of being successful as a public company is revenue, at least uh, five million dollars in revenue, or some kind of intellectual property, maybe patents on some new technology. Something to give people, whether as retail investors or institutional investors, to give them a reason to want to buy the stock in the open market. So many people, uh, again, that call me 
really don't have an edge and a reason for people to want to support their stock. And that's a that's a real hindrance to anybody trying to go public. So that's one of the questions I uh, ask somebody when they give me a, a call and want to go public. And we get into, are you generating revenue? No, I'm a startup. Okay, do you have any uh, uh, barriers to entry? Well, what's that? Well, intellectual property, something that sets you apart from potential comp, uh, you know, competition. So those are some of the, the questions that I ask them and try to get them ready for the process. You know, um, this is kind of a funny thing, but one of the things that I try to explain to people is that, you know, it's like going to the racetrack, you know, the, uh, the gamblers, they, they go there and they look at the sky, they look at the track, they look at the weather, they look at the temperature, they look at every different thing. And then they go to the window, they got 13 different choices and they pick one. And, and I always say, you know, why are they going to bet on your horse? What, what is it about your horse that makes an investor? And Because these investors in the stock market, some are professional, some are not. Why are they going to bet on your horse? What is it about your horse that, uh, you know, so it, it, apparently going public, you know, they need to have some track record that people can look at. How, how much track record do you, do you tell companies they need to have before going public makes sense for them? Um, one of the one of the companies that I took public, and this was a long time ago. This was about twenty years ago. It was one of the first companies, and it was just an idea, um, and it was a bidet of, of all things, a portable bidet that you could bolt onto your toilet. Um, and, and when the person came into my office and presented the idea. He was a startup. He had no revenue. He didn't have uh, anything going for him, but he did have a prototype. And and he was at the time he was 70 years old. Uh, you know, and I just uh, look at him and I said, thank you very much for coming. And, you know, kind of give him the bums rush out of the office. But um, I kind of felt he was on to something. So I did a little research on my own to find out you know, is there a market for a portable bidet? And I started calling uh, veterans, uh, hospitals, uh, nursing homes, uh, casinos in Las Vegas. And I found the answer was yes. If you could give us an affordable, portable bidet, well, we don't have to put all the plumbing and everything to uh, make this work. Yes, we're definitely interested. And uh, so that was a case where it was a startup. He didn't have any traction. He had nothing going for him. But, you know, there was a strong idea there, and we were able to take that company public. Um, it started out at $0.06, cents, and within about six months, the stock was trading above $3 a share uh, with no revenue. Now, that's unusual that you can get something going, but the idea was a strong idea. We got it into the Sears catalog when Sears was still putting out catalogs. So that's an exception to the rule today. Let's, let me, you know, uh, hang on. Let me let me ask you. Let me ask you about yeah. this this case. I mean, you know, it, it's unusual, but uh, every day we hear about unusual things, and people kind of base their life on on, on the the anomaly, not necessarily the the rule. You know, but mm -hmm. here's the here's the real thing that when I think about this, if you take your company public too early, don't you have to give up a lot of equity? I mean, if the guy had accomplished, cases, if the guy had accomplished a little more, wouldn't he be able to hold on to more of his company and price the stock higher? Yes, yeah, th that's that's a real good point, and and the answer is definitely 
uh, you because going public, you're always going to be uh, faced with dilution. And that's one of the elements that uh, people don't understand. They give, they call me up and say, look, we want to go public, but we want to maintain 99% control of the company. And I said, well, then you might as well stay private. There's always going to be some dilution, but that dilution can be controlled uh, depending on what you have to offer to investors and how you do a valuation of the company based on comparables in the industry. But there's always going to be dilution that you have to be careful of. Yeah. It just seems to me that, um, you know, if you start with a private placement, you go accomplish some things, you raise some money, you go do some good, and then you raise another round and you go do some good, you raise the price of the stock. To me, one, one of the strategies, and, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, is how does the company or the uh, sponsor, promoter, inventor, issuer, whatever you call the guy, uh, how does that person retain the most control, the most stock in their company? You know, what's the strategy? Good question. You, you can issue different classes of stock, A stock, B stock, C stock, D stock. And you just like um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook, he, you know, he controls the voting shares of the company. He doesn't, uh, he st- still has a lot of the, you know, stock, but the more stock he issues to the public, you know, buyers in the open market, it doesn't dilute his voting stock that he has. So you just issue different preferred shares to yourself or to insiders, and you end up controlling the voting, which controls the company, no matter how much dilution you cause to the the common stock that you have in the open market. Now, institutional investors really don't like that unless there's a strong leadership along with the management and, you know, again, uh, I'm not a, f- a fan of Mark Zuckerberg, but um, he has demonstrated that, you know, he knows what he's doing with Facebook and he was able to sell it to Wall Street. I mean, because they originally they told Zuckerberg, look, you, you know, you're not going to control the voting. He said, fine, I'll stay private. Well, the bankers on Wall Street wanted to make money. They saw it as a money machine. So they issued different classes of stock. So that's one way that you uh, you do that. Is just to issue voting shares to yourself. You know, but that goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago. The reason he was able to do that, and the reason that the Wall Street bankers won that deal so bad is because he had so much track record of being successful mm-hmm. running that company for a long time before he ever went public. So by he didn't even want to go public when he did. He kind of got forced into it just because of the base of the shareholders, right? Exactly. Exactly right. And, and they were looking for an exit strategy, which they would not have had if the company would have stayed private, even though, you know, some of the shareholders were selling even before the company went public, some of them were finding secondary buyers on the secondary market for their shares, you know, at a, at a, a discount and everything like that, which goes on quite a bit, but you, you know, you end up losing money in the long run. Same thing happened to Uber, you know, early investors into Uber, um, you know, put in $25,000. And when the company went public 10 years later, I mean, they, they were cashing out at, you know, 10, 15, $20 million cashing out uh, with the public stock. So they, they were able to hang on to it. Yeah. Well, all right. So, um, so let's talk about, you know, when is a company ready uh, to go public? If somebody came to you and said, look, we're an early stage company, would you tell them to go public or would you tell them to, maybe start with a different uh, different set of tools? 
Yeah, I, I would, again, it really would depend on, you know, what kind of business they have and what sector they're in and how strong the management is. I don't, I mean, I, I get a lot of phone calls weekly from people that want to go public and it doesn't always work out uh, for a lot of reasons. First off, the management um, doesn't, isn't experienced at running a, a public company. And that's one of the elements that investors look at. Is this management team strong enough to run a public company, commit the time and energy and resources to make it work? And if it's too early stage, the answer is no. If it's the wrong type of inexperienced management, the answer is no, you shouldn't go public. You need to bring in entrepreneurs are good at starting a business, but they're terrible at, you know, the long game of running a public company and make, making it a success unless they can step aside, you know, from the company. So, you know, there's a, a lot of elements to go into whether a company should go public. I, again, I tell people, look, you need to have some reason that people are going to want to buy your stock in the open market. And that's going to be what kind of revenue are you generating? Now, not projections, you know, people don't want to see projections two years out, three years out. It's what are you doing now? What's your cost of acquiring a a customer? How do you acquire a customer? Investors need to understand how you make money so that I can understand how I make money, you know, when I buy your stock. So a lot of elements go into the decision to going public. And it's, it's a commitment of time and money. And if they can't do both of those, then I, I discourage them from going public. Yeah. So let's say that somebody um, came to you and say, I want to raise some money and use the public markets and they don't have, uh, you know, a sizable track record. I mean, I mean, they might even be a hundred million dollar company, you know, and they might've been in business for 20 years. I mean, you yeah. know, what, what should they be thinking about? What are the things that they should be considering? I mean, should, because, the public markets are not the only way to get capital. I mean, so what, what what would you ask these people? What kinds of questions might you ask? Yeah, what I ask is, first off, um, a private company can still raise money. You know, uh, they can do private placements under 506C, under Reg D. They can, they can uh, raise money as a private company. The only drawback to that that I've seen through my 30-year career is private companies that don't go public is it's dead money to investors. You put your money into a private company under a private placement, there's absolutely no way for you to get your money out of there. Most private companies don't pay dividends. They don't pay interest. They're selling you common stock. And once you give them your money, you get common stock. You're at the mercy of who is ever running the company as to if they're going to get a buyout from a bigger company and maybe you get a return. 90% of private deals, you know, are just dead money to most investors. So the reason to go public is twofold. Number one, you want to access the capital markets. And number two, you want to provide an exit strategy for uh, early on investors and yourself um, so that people can, you know, liquidate the shares if and when they need to. Yeah, but an exit strategy could also be um, that that we're going to go public in two years after we've accomplished a certain number of things with the private money, right? I mean, that's that's another, you know. Yeah, that's a possibility. But, you know, investors, at least, it really depends on, uh, again, the the type of investor, retail versus institution. When when a a retail investor hears, um, well, we're going to go public in two years. 
you know, they just roll their eyes and they say, yeah, 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 yeah. Institutions have a longer horizon in most cases. Um, you know, again, depending on the company and, you know, what sector they're in, institutions might believe that you're going to go public or, and that two years might be the, the timeline because now might be too soon. So they're going to wait. But retail investors have a shorter, in most cases, a shorter time horizon. So the decision to go public really is, you know, why do you want to go public? And again, it's to access the capital markets and have an exit strategy for early investors. That's one reason I like the Reg A, uh, Regulation A offering, um, because look, a company can go through the process of doing a Reg A and they don't have to then list as a public company. They can go through as a Reg A attract uh, accredited and non-accredited and institutional investors who get free trading stock out of the Reg A as opposed to restricted dead money stock under a typical private placement. So even if they don't list right away as a public company, they can do a Reg A, uh, raise capital, and then eventually list as a public company when they feel the time is right. That's uh, some of the advantages of a Reg A plus over the typical other ways of going public. Have you been involved with, with a lot of these Reg A plus deals? Yes, I have. In fact, I've got two right now. Um, I just uh, got a qualification for one. It's a solar company called Sky Limit uh, Energy, and they're in the solar residential uh, and commercial uh, uh, solar uh, panels. And also I have a tequila client, an ultra premium tequila uh, client that we're doing the Reg A for as well. And I've been advising on a number of Reg A plus offerings. They have their benefits and they have the drawbacks too. But uh, in this market, I think the Reg A is a strong uh, vehicle to go public. You know, I'm I'm really bullish on the the Reg A plus offerings. I I think they're excellent. As long as you have sort of an affinity kind of a concept, I I think that Mm-hmm. That in especially retail investors, they kind of rally around a concept that they like. The two that you just mentioned, tequila and solar, I like both those. I think both those are very good offerings for A plus. But a, a lot of these deals, I think a lot of these A plus deals have failed because they're not sexy enough. They're not interesting enough. They don't have enough affinity. They don't have enough fan base. And what happened and then, with the yeah, what happened with the, uh, the Reg A plus early on? I'm, I'm and I'm going back uh, three years when it really, uh, when the Jobs Act was passed and allowed companies to use Reg A and it, they expanded the dollar amount that they could raise from 5 million to 50 million. The problem with the Reg A's at that point were anybody and everybody was doing a Reg A. Startups, pre-revenue, and the bankers uh, that were taken in public priced the stock at five, ten, fifteen dollars $15 a share and once they started trading, it became apparent that the company's, the stock wasn't worth $10 a share. That's why 90% of the reggae stocks lost, uh, 90% of them lost their value right off the, you know, some of them went from $10 down to $2 within 90 days after uh, going public. That's why NASDAQ changed the rules and said, look, if you don't have at least two years of operations under your belt showing some revenue, you can't do a reggae and list on NASDAQ. You could do a reggae and list on OTC markets, but you can't list on here. You have to have some seasoning and 
so that the, they didn't have these crashes and the valuations weren't, you know, way out of line. So, yeah, it, it has, it's got a black eye initially, but right now they clean, everybody's cleaned that up. And I like the Reg A. I, I think it's a perfect vehicle for a lot of companies. Who, um, who's raising the capital? Because one of the questions that, that companies will have is, who's going to raise the capital for them? And, you know, are there investment bankers that are out there doing it? Do they have to run internet campaigns? I mean, how, how is that working? Yeah, good, good question. The biggest part of a reggae is marketing. You can get any, uh, any attorney to do the legal work, uh, to do a filing. You can get any accountant or auditors to do the audited financials, which you need two years of audits. The biggest expenditure in reggae is uh, marketing, getting the word out there through uh, YouTube videos, through face-to-face conferences, to conference calls, all types of PR and marketing. And that can be expensive. It can be a few hundred thousand dollars to market to get the word because investors don't invest in deals they've never heard of. And it, with a Reg A, you really need to allocate a lot of money for the marketing side to get people aware of who you are, what you're doing, and where you're going to go, and how you're going to get there. Uh, again, investors investors don't read business plans. Their attorneys and their trusted advisors read the business plans. Investors rely on that. Uh, information from the trusted uh, advisors to put money into a deal. That's the biggest mistake a lot of companies make with Reg A. They spend all their money on putting a business plan together, and they don't put enough money into the marketing side to get investors to put money into the deal. And it's it's either retail or institutions. Institutions so, can't come into a deal unless it's five dollars or higher. <laughs> Yeah. So who, um, so let's say a company wanted to do one of these deals. I mean, one of the things that I notice about this marketplace is it's, it's a little bit uh, splintered. In other words, uh, they get a lawyer to write the legal work. Then they get a marketing guy to do the marketing work. And then they might need an investment banker to do some other stuff. I mean, so they got all these different people that are involved. And a lot of times the company doesn't know how to pick a quarterback or how to be the quarterback. How do they go about getting that, that right? Well, that's a good question. That's where I come in. I'm the quarterback on all my deals. I've got my legal team. I've got my auditing team and my marketing team. Everything is one under one uh, roof when people come to me. Um, if somebody comes to me and says, and, you know, they want to go public and we have a discussion and we, I give them the pros and cons of an S1 registration, Reg A plus, whatever the vehicle, once we make that decision, I do everything. My team does the legal, uh, the, the accounting, the marketing. We have the investment bankers that we can go to. We can, before this lockdown that we had, I, I did about 250 roadshows all across the country. A lot of them in New York, uh, at the Harvard Club, a lot of them here in California, where I would bring the client in, the public company, and I'd bring 25 investment bankers and family offices to listen to the presentation, to support the stock and make an investment. So in my case, when a client comes to me, I'm the project manager. I'm the quarterback that brings everything together. Um, And for one main reason, if you leave it up to the client to find an attorney, find an accountant, just like you said, they get confused. 
because most of them, 90% of them don't know how to pick advisors or the right team to be successful as a public company. Yeah, that, that's, it's, that's just way uh, above their pay grade in this area. I mean, they're, they may be great at a lot of other things, but uh, the money business is a complicated business as, as we're just discussing. So um, I kind of like these offerings, these, uh, these reggae plus offerings, but uh, again, I think they need to be affinity driven. And then it also depends on the kind mm-hmm. of investors that you want to have. And let's talk about the different kinds of investors, retail investors, which are regular folks that just walk around town and they could be just individual people of any kind. And then there's institutions. Uh, you know, a lot of people want these big whales, pros and cons. What do you think? Yeah, good question. Um, it, a company really has to approach both retail and institutions. I had an oil and gas company uh, come to me, and um, they they had a few uh, big institutions that owned some of the stock and very little retail support. So they had 500 shareholders, and I told them, they came to me and I said, look, uh, we got to broaden your shareholder base. Because you've got too many, you got you've got three or four institutions that have your stock, and basically they're controlling the trading volume. We gotta we gotta get more retail people in. So they had five hundred. I brought in eight thousand new retail shareholders. I got the daily trading volume from that company from ten thousand shares a day to trading four hundred and fifty thousand shares a day. The price uh, from forty cents to over five dollars a share. And we did all that within 18 months. Hey, would you, would you explain, gas company. Ex- explain to the audience why trading volume is so important, uh, you know, to the price of a stock? It, it comes down to liquidity. Um, investors want to put, and I don't care if it's a retail investor or an institutional investor, or if they're short term or long term, eventually they want to trade out of the stock. The only way to trade out of the stock is to have liquidity in the open market so that, you know, you can call your broker up and say, look, I want to sell 100,000 shares of my stock at $3 a share. And the broker can get it done in a matter of a couple of days without hurting uh, the, the company itself and the other shareholders. So liquidity is extremely important. Uh, you know, I, I've worked on some deals uh, in the past years ago where, you know, the issue where the company wanted to control 90% of the trading volume, and you can't do that. There's just absolutely no liquidity. There's no reason for somebody to want to come in. So again, liquidity is extremely important. If you're not going to have liquidity, then you should stay a private company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what other, what other kinds of, uh, mechanisms there there you know i mean there there are reverse mergers there's pipes i mean there's all kinds of different kinds of tools what other mm-hmm. tools are fashionable nowadays yeah um real quick on reverse mergers um i did a number of those years ago they, they were okay um lately in the, let's say in the last five to six years the sec and finra uh frown on reverse mergers because there's just so much fraud and crap involved with reverse mergers um with a reverse merger, you're buying a, an existing public vehicle that for some reason can't make a go of it, and they've got a, a trading uh, shell available, and you're going to merge with that. Well, you merging with that, you don't know what kind of baggage, what kind of lawsuits you're going to get into. No matter how much due diligence you do, there's always 
something you miss or something your attorney misses. And once you start the reverse merger, you start putting press releases out, you start becoming successful, then hidden lawsuits from vendors, old shareholders come out of the woodwork, and that destroys a lot of companies. With Reg A, you're, with a Reg A plus, you're doing a clean offering right from the beginning. You don't have to worry about uh, old lawsuits coming out of the woodwork. Now, another way that you can't go public is with an S1 registration. Uh, pluses and minus. S1 registrations typically are for institutional s- support, whereas your Reg A plus, you can go accredited, non-accredited retail investors as well as institutions. With an S1, once you file with the SEC, there's a quiet period that could be 60 to 90 days where you can't talk about raising money. You can't raise any money and you can't talk about it during that quiet period. With a Reg A plus, you don't have a quiet period. You can you can do while your legal team, while the legal team is preparing your offering for a Reg A, you can be getting what's called indications of interest from investors who are interested in your deal. So you can talk about it constantly. You can't take the money initially until you're qualified with the SEC, but there's no quiet period. And again, Reg A Plus is open to individual accredited and non-accredited, whereas the S1, uh, more institutional investors, harder to sell in some cases, and you got that quiet period. So you got reverse mergers, you have the S1 registration and the Reg A. I like the Reg A for all the reasons I just recited, and it's, it's less reporting to the SEC. You only have to report twice, whereas an S1, you got to report monthly, quarterly, and yearly, and a lot of uh, 8K filings and everything. So it's more burdensome to the company. Let's talk about one last thing. Um, would you explain what SPACs are? I mean, because it, it's they're sort yeah, of related to this. And some of the companies that listen, they may well be approached by a SPAC for an acquisition. Yeah, SPACs are, uh, that's short for special purpose acquisition. Now, they, uh, they've been around since the 80s. Um, they fell out of favor in the 90s. And then uh, during this pandemic last year, they, they came back with a vengeance. And there were like 120 of them a month uh, towards uh, the last part of 2020. <clears throat> SPACs are a way of going public with an initial public offering. You still have to file with the SEC, file a registration statement. But, uh, but any money, the drawbacks to the SPAC are... Any money that you raise in a SPAC has to go into an escrow account. You can't touch that money for expenses, for legal fees, for underwriting fees, for roadshows, for promotional fees. So all the money you raise under a SPAC has got to go into escrow. Why? Because investors who invest in the SPAC have the right to redeem their investment, which means they can get their money back at any time. And what happens with a SPAC is before they uh, identify a target, a target acquisition, 50% of the investors have already asked for their money back because it took two, you get 18 months to two years to make an acquisition. Some investors say it's too long. They want their money back. And that happens to be statistics. So now you're, you're short of uh, your capital raise to make your target acquisition. You got to go back into the market with a pipe pipe financing to raise additional money. 
So those are the drawbacks. Um, plus the issuer who's doing the sponsor who's doing the SPAC has to front all the legal fees, the underwriting fees, promotional fees, all the fees, which can be anywhere from $800,000 to $1.2 million out of the sponsor's pocket before they can get any kind of return. So the, the right of redemption for investors, uh, the fact that they can pull out of the deal anytime, there's some negatives. Now, what really put the cold water on SPACs in the last couple of months was the SEC changing the accounting rules. SPACs issue uh, to investors, they issue common stock and they issue a warrant. They were putting the warrant on their books as equity. The SEC came back and changed the accounting rules and said, no, you've got to put that uh, warrant as a debt on your financials. So all the SPACs that were you know, ready to go had to stop, go back to their accountants, and you know, redo all their financials and everything like that. So that, along with additional class action lawsuits, and I won't get into a lot of that, but a lot of class action lawsuits are going against SPACs because the SPAC didn't do enough due diligence on the target acquisition. And so now you got all the lawyers lining up at the trough uh, for class action lawsuits. So there's been a lot of downturn in the SPAC market in the last 90 days. Well, it seems seems to me that um, you know, first of all, only only the wealthiest people get involved in these SPAC deals. So you know, they're uh, they're not they're not beginner investors. I mean, these are people that are highly sophisticated. I I wonder about you know that warrant thing you're talking about. It seems to me like it wouldn't be a debt. It seems like it'd be a contingent liability, but that that's getting a little complicated. And uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not an accountant. Yeah. I only know what what the how the SEC came down on it. But then you know, and the, the other drawback about there were only two uh, accounting firms in the whole country that were doing ninety percent of the SPAC audits, and they were backlogged with the change in the rule. So new SPACs couldn't get in the front door, and old SPACs were having to redo all their accounting. And you're right, SPACs are only for very very high net sophisticated because typically a SPAC is trying to raise $200 million to $500 million. And that really comes from family offices, private equity. It's not from your typical retail investor who puts in $100,000 or $500,000. So it, it's really a specialized area. Yeah. Well, you know, Mike, this is this. Uh, first of all, you know, because this is this is my, my, my you know, my background and I, I love having this conversation it might be a little bit uh, complex for some people, but you certainly have provided the inside track. We're always looking for the inside track, which is the best, smartest, or fastest way to get something done. And I think the big takeaway here is that if 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 these kinds of things are on your mind, you need to reach out to professional, competent, uh, you know, advisors. And it's not always counsel. It's not always attorneys. It's not always accountants because those are not necessarily the business people that uh, know how to do these kind of things. Uh, you know, the best way they they ultimately may be the technicians that put them together but they're not necessarily the advisors on the front end because uh, you really, like you were describing, you need a whole team of people to make this happen. Absolutely. Yes. So, well, listen, man, I I sure appreciate you uh, enlightening us and sharing some, uh, some Intel and uh, we'll put your your, uh, contact info in the, uh, in the show notes so that uh, if people need to get a hold of you or want to get a hold of you, which I'm, I'm sure that any, listener thinking about this sort of thing would probably want to get some, some input, 
but uh, but listen, man, we we appreciate your uh, your candor and your concept, your your concepts and your just your ideas. So, thanks for being with us. Okay, thanks a lot for the time. Thanks. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.